Hey, everybody. It's Greg Bendian. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a minute because I have been moved to a new location. I am now living in the Ramapo Mountains, beautiful part of northern New Jersey, in a new home. I got all my gear and all my stuff over here. And I thought, what better way to, to start a new season, season of life, if you will, by inviting a friend in to talk and chat about music, someone that you've seen before on my show. He's a guitarist and he is a musical conceptualist. He paints with sound. And I know that he would be interested in joining me in, in paying tribute to one of the greatest musicians that I've ever worked with and one of the great innovators of the guitar and of improvised music, Mr. Derek Bailey. So I'm going to kind of be the guest today. And my friend Tim Motzer is going to be our guest host. So hi, Tim. Thanks for doing this. Oh, it's great to be here, Greg. How are you doing? Doing okay. I've uh, been doing a lot of thinking about Derek and, and uh, what he means to me and what he's meant musically to so many of us. And so um, I'm happy to to open the vault and and uh, talk about my experiences uh, as you pepper me with questions about Derek Bailey. Wow, it's a, a lot of questions. I, I guess the first one would be, um, when and how did you become aware of Derek? Well, uh, I've spoken th about this a little bit before, but you know, the conduit was really uh, King Crimson, Lark's Tongues, and Aspic. Mm which when it came out uh, in 72, included the uh, amazing and amazingly mysterious percussionist, Jamie Muir. And of course, I was already a Bill Bruford fan and a Crimson fan from, from early on. Um, I think I heard in the Court of the Crimson King uh, when I was about seven years old and uh, at summer camp and it came, when it came out around 69 or 70. And so following that through, yeah, I, I heard Lark's Tongues and I was already into contemporary uh, percussion and, and classical music. And and I heard all these metal sounds and, and strange scrapings and bells and whistles and things going on with Bruford playing, you know, his odd meter grooves and yeah. and Fripp and everybody going for it. And, uh, and around that time, a lot of bands had percussion, you know, so Weather Report had a percussionist and sure. uh, Hoy Tyner always had a percussionist. And so you have a drummer and a percussionist. So yeah, that was my, you know, really my, my meat. And, and I, I was so fascinated by Jamie that I thought, well, I got to find out what else he's on. And that led me to an ECM record from a couple of years before uh, Lark's Tongues, an album called Music Improvisation Company. One of the first ECM releases actually. Mm, yeah. And I heard that and I had no idea what was going on. I mean, it just was in, in the most neutral sense of the word noise. It was sound to me, you know, it was just people making noises, making sounds. And I thought, now nah, there's, there's gotta be something going on here. This is not random. You know, they're clearly trying not to do something in addition to trying to do something, you know, they're trying to make music that's not about melody, music that's not about harmony. And since I'd already been exposed to electronic music and 
all these very strange John Cage concepts and and Verez and sure you know tape pieces and you know so I wasn't completely cast adrift but I thought what is this guy's setup like what is what is he playing you know is it a screen door that he's scraping on <laughs> he's breaking glass like what what what's going on carried over from from Lark's tongues where you hear those moments where it's clearly Jamie sure coloring texturing mm. um you know uh timbre was was an issue now in a rock band so from music improvisation company i started playing i'd already been playing um progressive rock jazz rock um jazz percussion ensemble stuff contemporary classical in high school so that would be 80 81 then in 82 derek and jamie recorded an album called dart drug on mm. Incas records and i got the vinyl I don't even remember how I got it because in 82, it would not have been that easy to find a British import. Right. And I listened to it. And then I was fascinated by the guitar player, Derek Bailey, who was not playing in a traditional guitar fashion. You know, it wasn't as though he was another type of Robert Fripp. He was completely different other animal. And Jamie was very much featured on this record. Um, there are long periods of time where Derek lays out and uh, and Jamie's playing alone. And it, it had a huge effect on me to the point where, like everything else, when I get a record and I love it, I try to find when people are playing live. And in 83, Derek Bailey was playing live in a basement on the Lower East Side of Manhattan with John Zorn and George Lewis. They had a wow. record out called Yankees. And uh, I had bought and I bought Yankees and I went to see them play. And this is literally what happened. Um, I sat there loving the music, fascinated by by the textures and the sounds and just the completely atypical approach to the whole thing and how they interacted and they interacted in ways that weren't obvious to me and I thought okay there's something going on here I really need to to think about it's another way of making music so being the the kind of outgoing uh adventurous person that I was at that time I I went right up to Derek and I said excuse me Mr. Bailey I'm a very big fan and uh he said really what what do you play I said I play percussion and he said, oh, you play percussion. Where are you from? I said, well, I'm I'm from across the bridge in, in New Jersey. And, um, you know, I, I would just love to play with you sometime if that's possible. And he said, how's tomorrow? Oh, man. Come on. Which, again, is like when it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And also that attitude, like I'm not doing anything tomorrow. I don't have I don't have any barriers that I'm throwing up uh, to play I'm he really was ready to go you know to play with a stranger that was I was 20 I think at the time in 83 um so he said get me an amp and pick me up and take me to where we're going to play and and I borrowed my grandfather's uh, Chevy Impala <laughs> 
And I drove down to the Lower East Side where he was staying for about a month. He he had was on a um a grant from the British government to to interact with all the people on the the Lower East Side, the uh, downtown scene, if you will. Wow, that's so awesome. Yeah, and you know, so he's there to play. I picked him up. Um, I had recording equipment set up at my parents' home where where my percussion was, and we went there. Um, it was really kind of funny because <laughs> Derek was in his fifties, you know, at that point I, I was 20 and I walk in with this man and my parents kind of, kind of look like, okay, it's not the strangest thing he's ever done, but it might be, you know, and then they, you know, I guess they heard the music and they'd already heard us playing pretty out stuff with my high school chums. Um, I was in college at that point. Um, and we recorded and I still have those recordings from the first time I played with Derek. And from the beginning, we just clicked. It was on. Oh yeah. Um, I knew enough about where he was coming from, from listening to him, listening to how he approached the instrument, hearing him with a lot of different players, hearing him with percussionists. Um, and I had just decided that I wasn't going to play the way the other percussionists played. I wanted to, it was always a very early um, ambition of mine to bring together my influences so that I really thought of my percussion setup as both a drum set and a contemporary percussion aggregation, you know, so cowbells and uh, preparing the drum surfaces and uh, sheets of metal and glass and different different objects because you know i was coming out of jamie i was coming out of uh Varez, right. i was coming out of zappa and uh and derek really liked it i mean you know he he's like well let's do this again so a week later you know we we got together again and recorded a second set of duets which i also have in my archive um i didn't know that he was so fond of playing with percussionists it, it, it it's got it's gotten back to me now that that was really his favorite setting was to play duets with percussion and um you know obviously he played played with so many different people uh, the original groups of of evan parker and Hugh davies and um uh you know the uh the whole british improvising scene sure and not surprising to me you know uh that this kind of crisscrossed a little bit with the progressive rock scene and that crimson had also had keith tippett on piano who was someone that derek worked with a lot i've always wondered to what degree robert fripp had been checking out the free improv scene in britain because otherwise i don't know how he could have come across someone like jamie you know hmm. Um, and again, I like connections and I like, you know, crossbreeding of things. So I thought, well, look at that. There's open door between prog rock and free improv. And you just walk through it if you're, if you're willing to, and if you don't have any preconceived notions about what it is and what you want to do with it and, and what's possible. And so I never felt limited playing with Derek and I never 
had Derek tell me what to play. Um, he was always uh, trying something different. He he had different ways of approaching playing with you. He would maybe not listen to you sometimes, and then maybe sometimes he'd catch on to something that you were doing. I was always about listening because that's one of my real strengths is that, you know, I listen and I can quickly kind of decide on a strategy of what I do or what I don't do in a, in a, in a given situation to, to kind of bring a clarity to improvisation. Cause I knew that also I didn't really enjoy having no idea what was going on when I listened to uh, improvised music. I wanted to feel like people could hear there was some sort of tangent going on in the music. There was some sort of a motif or a theme. So or that was early on when I started thinking I should organize my, my setup. I should organize my idea of rhythm. I should organize my idea of um, pulse or time in a free setting. Uh, certainly have be aware of it to the point where it would be something that I could make my own approach viable in that situation. And, and Derek was, was game for whatever. Um, you know, he called me early on for uh, company events. Company wow. was his, his loosely uh, um, constructed idea of people getting together to play, kind of like having company over and, you know, and everybody chats and everybody's relaxed. And it was very relaxed. So I think the first company event we did was at the first knitting factory. And it was me, Derek, Leo Smith, Wadada Leo Smith, George Lewis, wow. Mark Dresser, Robert Dick. I'm trying to think if there was anyone else. And um some and nice company there. Yeah, and it, that was great. And then the idea, Amazing. of course, being uh, you know, different groupings, ad hoc groupings within that. So mm -hmm. on the first night, not everyone would play together maybe until the last piece. So it would be duets, trios, quartets. And I liked that idea very much. That's cool. That, you know, you kind of, you you explore different combinations. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started doing this thing, which I still do and I like to do, which is uh, play something different on each piece. So I think of them sort of compositionally, sort of improvisationally, but very improvisationally, but but somewhat compositionally in that a composer would, you know, choose limited means for a piece, you know, just just piano and violin and cello or just, uh, you know, flute and wind quintet, something like that. So I kind of brought that over and thought, OK, I'm just going to play bowed cymbals or I'm just going to play prepared drum heads, or I'm just going to play with my fingers, or I'm just going to not play any cymbals. And so Derek then had me on a company event in, in the biggest one ever, I think, which was an eight, summer of 88. We played uh, at the London ICA, Contemporary mm. Arts. And, and uh, that was an amazing experience because it was 20 or 25 improvisers from around the world. It was an international wow. company. Yeah. 
and it was five or six nights and every night somebody would have a, a different chance to choose who they'd want to play with um Derek was not really in control it was very egalitarian it was okay you're it's your turn to to choose people tonight okay it's his turn okay and you can be chosen and different groups happen and that was when I played trio with Derek and Gavin Breyers. Mm. That was incredible. Um, so yeah, the, and Lowell Coxill was there and um, uh, Conrad Cork was on that and uh, LaDonna Smith was on that. And oh, it's just so many people from, from Japan, people from... Germany, people from Belgium. There was a, a cat there from Tasmania. And Derek wow. had other guitarists on there too. He wasn't, you know, wasn't afraid of having other guitarists that were inspired by him or, you know, uh, fans of his, but played their own way. Uh, John Butcher, I think, was on that. Uh, it was it was fascinating. And and again, I changed my setup every piece. I changed what I would do based on the instrumentation of the group. And I, I was very against playing the same thing on every piece. Or this, I was always afraid of sameness and I'm always right, right. really into variety in any musical setting. What and year was that, Greg? That's summer of 88. 88, okay. Yeah. Um, and th this is also funny because well, two things came out of that. One was I wrote a letter before I went to London. I wrote a letter to Jamie Muir. Derek gave me his address. And I wrote a letter to Jamie, a fan letter, telling him, you know, what a great fan I was and how much he inspired me. And, and he wrote me back and he said, uh, I don't play now. I'm a painter. He paints. Uh, he was painting at that time and he's living in in Crane Grove, where where Dart Drug was recorded, uh, at his home, and uh, and you know again just hit it off. Uh, what a super nice chap, and uh, so happy to to have somebody there that you know really grokked what he did, and uh, and we're hanging out at his place. Now I had traveled to London with basically a bag of accoutrement and and just sticks and mallets and things like you know that um things i could prepare the, the kit with but i didn't have gear so i'm hanging out with jamie at his house and he says to me um do you want to see the gear unsolicited just says do you, you want to see the gear right <laughs> i always wanted to know what the hell you were hitting I always been wondering why, and he takes me into this this spare room, and it's just shelves and shelves of percussion. Wow! And he says, "Oh, you know that that's the bell on on Easy Money, and that's the uh, the sound on Lark's One, and you know." And he's pointing out to me what everything is, and I'm just like drooling, you know. <laughs> I got to see it up close, and then it gets crazier because he then says to me, "You know what?" Take anything you want, just bring it back at the end of the week. So I was able to pick and choose from that percussion room 
the instruments I would play with Derek. So again, like this kind of full circle thing. That's beautiful. It was so beautiful. And, and he was just, a, you know, is just such a kind, gentle soul. And, and then it gets better because I, you know, I rented, I rented a van or whatever and, you know, loaded it up with Jamie's <laughs> gear. That's amazing. And, uh, and then he said, yeah, I'm going to come see you play. I thought, no, that's, that's not possible. You know, you, Jamie Muir is going to come see me play with Derek Bailey. Lo and behold, you know, the second or third night, he walked into the ICA and people's mouths dropped open because here was, you know, the hermit of percussion, you know, a guy who had walked away from King Crimson mid-tour, you know, um, to become a, a, a Buddhist monk, I believe. And at that time, and everyone's saying, Jamie's here, Jamie's here, look, Jamie's here. And people went up to him and they said, Jamie, are you here to, 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 to listen to Derek? And he said, and I overheard this. So I'm really happy that this, I was within earshot. He said, no, I'm, I'm here to hear Greg Bendian. Amazing. You know, and that just gave me such confidence and just uh, such a great feeling of connecting to a kind of lineage you know, yes. like when you follow somebody on a band that you were yeah. really into in their chair, there's this responsibility, there's a kind of um, honor to it. Sure. And it's then it's also, also like an imperative to not ape what they did, to not try to recreate what they did. So there's a challenge. And it's also beautiful, like um, the fact that you're out of the States and you're in England and it's just like a whole other thing opens up because you're there and and you know what's up so you're connecting in with these people that must have been extraordinary you know that moment in time I, it was a, one of the great moments of of my career uh if you want to call it that but <laughs> it's just one of the great moments of of creative connection where you know, I don't know how, I mean, Jamie's become kind of a legend now at that time. I don't know how many people would have been writing him letters and, and saying, you know, I want to figure out what you're doing. <laughs> and, and he was a, a trombonist and, you know, he, there's even footage of him playing trombone on, on some Crimson videos from that time period. Um, he was a drummer. He was left-handed um he had a very unusual setup i think bruford called it the industrial drum kit yeah sure you know and uh you know just the idea of being there playing his instruments playing with british people and then the other thing that i did was i was really aware of the fact that derek and that uh british scene or the improvised scene didn't have a lot of tuned percussion weren't mm. really xylophone or vibraphone players uh, at all right so i kind of a heads up to derek i said derek it would be so cool if i could have a vibraphone and he said okay i'll, I'll if you can track one down i'll i'll pay for it so backline was also in addition to all of jamie's stuff i had a vibraphone and that kind of 
set me apart too because even to this moment i don't know how many times you know keyboard percussion has has been presented in that music and i thought oh this is my area mm. i can i can prepare the vibraphone or i i can use extended techniques or bows or whatever i need to change up the music plus now i'm playing pitches mm. i'm not playing noises i'm playing definite pitches and he liked that so derek was always open to whatever you wanted to bring and that was a remarkable kind of vote of confidence that's amazing um you, you know you, you, thinking about derek and um you know you said that he really loved playing with percussionists and i i feel like as a guitar player listening to him that he is a percussionist you know like his guitar is not a guitar you know it's it's a sound device and he's trying to figure out every possible sound and noise that you could get out of it and uh, it's kind of like a wonderland to check him out solo but then like i heard him play with you in the banter record and you're playing uh is that a xylophone or are you playing vibraphone on that vibraphone and glockenspiel and glockenspiel in addition to you know my drums and percussion stuff yeah and I, i'd never heard him in that context before um so that's that's really significant but um getting back to this big concert this week of shows was that recorded and filmed it was recorded by the British Library. Wow. Yeah, British Sound Archive at the British Library or British Museum. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's still there. Um, I have some of it. They have all of it. They were there recording. Also, there was a, a guy that uh, fans of this music will know named Mike Ger Michael Gerzen, who was, I think, really Derek's chief archivist, uh, would follow him to record him everywhere. So Michael Gerzen who uh, is no longer with us. I have recordings that Michael made. Um, we all had a chance to choose the groupings that we wanted. I think I played solo at one point. I played a solo prepared vibraphone piece just to, to kind of make a point. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it, it was one of those things that, that kind of launched me. Um, and it launched this this idea that um, I'm not going to decide if I'm a free jazz guy. I'm not going to decide if I'm a free improv guy. I'm not going to decide. I just want to make the sounds that I like. Mm. I want to be able to interact with the guys that can really play and the guys that have concepts. And, you know, to your point, the way Derek approached the guitar was so liberating to other instrumentalists mm. because it's not about the guitar per se now sidebar i've never worked with a guitarist that knew where every harmonic on the neck was the way derek did you know and if you watch him play solo on on youtube or wherever sure just the facility of pulling out every harmonic which gave him this ability to jump registers constantly so you know you you early before we went on on air you talked about sparks and and i would yeah. think of these things as like little like 
flecks of light. Absolutely. Um, his ability to, to play chunky rhythms and then suddenly there's this high note that'll pop out and you know who can do that who does that you know wide interval it's almost like if you're thinking of the, the spread of a piano and the, the bass register all the way up to the top you know uh, he was trying to pull that out of the guitar in a way you know no the very range, much so the range of an orchestra perhaps or trying to get there find that kind of expression that width of expression super wide intervallic stuff you know, awesome. And that maybe not surprising to people, but I'm happy to reveal this. In conversations with Derek, I realized that he was a big Webern fan, mm. and that the term clang farb and melody or tone collar as as a melodic idea of a way mm. of shaping lines was coming out of Webern, and now it's on the guitar. And I always have had a good rapport with people who have some reference to the contemporary classical composers, because that's mm -hmm. such rich fodder for feeding other ways of playing, you know? Absolutely. If, if we only limit ourselves to we're a post-jazz improviser, it's not really the same thing. It's, it's not free jazz. Right. You know, I, I was talking to a drummer um, that I've been working with here um, a few weeks ago, and we've been doing duos also like you and I have been. And and we're we just uh, we're to the point where to talk about what something is now in, in an improvisational manner, it's it can't be jazz or it can't be post jazz or post whatever. And all these things, it's just like maybe it's just open music. <laughs> You know, and that's what we came up with last week. Let's let's just play open. So that strips away everything. So it can be anything then. And it's it somehow as a musician or a player, that was very freeing to me just to think about that concept that you don't have to ever play in a bag. And and he was one of the guys that, you know, I, I guess him, there's so many, you know, I as a guitar player, like I think of Fred Frith, I think of Keith row to a degree i think of of course derek um there's certain guys that, that they were the guys that were way out there and fred was the one that was like okay i can relate to fred and the rest of the guys are more conceptual and i would follow that on and and there's something there you know with everybody and they're truly breaking ground all of them um but they were open musicians really to the point where if you look at a British trio like AMM, exactly. Rowe and Eddie Prevo and mm -hmm. Mr. Tilbury, then you know that they're involved with contemporary classical music and Morton Feldman and and other ways of organizing sound. Yes. Barry Guy, another classically trained guy, Gavin Bryars, classical composer. So I had no problem feeling comfortable that I could bring in any kind of rhythmic or percussion or um, or sonic approach, and it would be acceptable. Sure. Or be encouraged, really. Um, because as I say, it at all, the door had been opened and it was, it was blown wide open. Um, but also, uh, in, being around someone like Derek, I can mm. tell people was an indefatigable practicer. 
just you never saw him when he didn't have a guitar in his hands and he was always just trying and, and the way he would practice of just having moving intervals around and repositioning revoicing and and uh inverting things and i hope that people will listen and hear that in his playing because yeah. you gotta be able to play the guitar to do that trying everything yeah turning over all the rocks so to speak you know right so Sir, another memory that is very important to me is um, I was playing with John Zorn, rehearsing or something, and um, and Ned Rothenberg came in and he said, you know, I just had this conversation with Derek because, you know, we all we just just in awe of him. You know, he was the yeah. man, <laughs> everybody who played with Derek. Well, that was special. And he said, you know what Derek said to me at the end of the day, Ned? It all comes down to pitch. Now, I had heard Music Improvisation Company. That didn't come down to pitch. So he had moved into this area where you can actually hear this in his solo playing, where now it's really about note choices. Mm. Now it's really about, you know, in, in a very facile way, moving intervallically, as we say, to wide intervals, to crunchy, clustery groupings. Um, you know, he wanted all of those. And he and then it also came up. And by and by the way, as I was a composer at that point, I've been doing 12 tone and serial and atonal and every kind of, of note treatment. Um, I was in very happy to hear Derek say that pitch was not to be thrown out with the you know baby with the bathwater. Yeah, pitch is very important, of course, right? <laughs> But, you know, to, to, when you hear something obvious like that and it kind of like it hits you different. So yeah. it's like, oh, pitch is not thrown out because we're in this weirdo music situation. You know, pitches, organizing pitches, still part of the game plan or one of your possible strategies. Sure. I mean, I almost see it like a a, a massive journey, you know, maybe one's life journey where they start. and along the way you keep refining and finding and uh having ideas and having epiphanies as you're going along you know and and you keep developing and you keep developing and i'm sure he was like that to the end of his life right well very much so and that's as i say uh kind of started to say is it's like it's it's important to see a guy like that who doesn't sit in one place and say, this is what, this is all I do. Right. Um, you know, he, he would listen to you or he would not listen to you. Mm -hmm. He would uh, play a lot or he wouldn't play at all. He, he tried all of these different stratagem. And, um, and I thought that, uh, that that was uh, a, something to grow on, something to really explore because yeah, he's doing it. You ought to be doing it because it it results in more interest, more interesting music, more unpredictability, because predictability is only so interesting. Um, and then I also noticed that uh, he was involved with Pulse and not a lot of, sorry to say, not a lot of free players uh, of any kind were really into Pulse and Audible mm time and where's the time is it slow is it fast is it medium sure you know and and, and i thought okay well if he's going to play pulse 
then I'm going to have an idea of where my pulse is. And this began the, the whole uh, series of events that led me to thinking always about pulse. That and reading Paul Motion in Modern Drummer magazines, uh, being asked about his free drumming. And he said, for me, there's always time. There's always some sort of sense of time going on. And you might think that I'm playing whatever, but in my mind, I have a sense of here's the tempo or here's the tempo or here's the tempo. And, yeah. and so that became very appealing because now I could play, and I did very often play rhythmic unison with Derek out of the blue because I had a grid of some sort or another on which to place his incredible sounds. And he was very percussive. So playing Farber melody between percussion and percussive guitar was flying off all the time. It is very much all over banter. Um, when banter was recorded like 93 or 94, we've been playing together for 10 years. So there's a reason that that record is as cohesive as it is. Um, because Derek knew to finish up the, sort of the end of that uh, that company event in, in London, he came to me at the end of the week. And I, I don't think I've ever told this to anyone, but he said, you know, Greg, I think you approached this week better than anybody else because <laughs> you just kept adjusting. You just kept resetting. You just kept reorienting. And when he noticed that, it just, it meant so much to me because that was exactly what I was doing and hoping that it would just make interesting music. Because I don't like listening to improvised music where it doesn't have any uh, center to it. It doesn't have any focus to it. And just sort of randomness is not my big thing. Whereas I know that it could be a big thing for a lot of people, including John Cage. So, you know, you kind of figure out what's your stance. Are you all the way into random and aleatoric? Are you in, into some sort of structure? Are you into total structure and writing it all down? Um, another interesting thing that happened with Derek around that time was the Elliot Carter guitar solo called Changes. Mm. was being written and David Starobin the guitarist was commissioning Carter to write to write this guitar solo piece changes now Derek who was like I say open to playing with different people would invite classical players and he had invited the great wonderful pianist Ursula Oppens who had premiered so much of Carter and premiered so many great works of contemporary classical um, and she said, Derek, um, I know this guy, he's playing a, a new guitar piece by Elliot Carter. Maybe you should, you know, you'd be interested in checking it out. So he went to Ursula's apartment and Derek and David Sterobin played this guitar piece by Eric, by Elliot Carter. And Derek reported back to me and he said, I was really amazed there's a lot of things in that piece that sound like what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was that, that 
understanding of where all the harmonics were and an understanding of all the different voicings and treating it as an instrument and not really super concerned that it's a guitar. Um, so I knew that Derek was interested in, in classical. I knew he was interested in the current approach to music, whether it was all written down as it is in the Carter or whether it was completely improvised. Very um, inspiring to know, yeah, nobody's going to give you a hard time if you're into Carter or Zanakis or, and so I wanted to bring the, that that kind of thing more now. And it led to me getting the Cecil Taylor gig. Wow. And I can tell you that story because, you know, I'd been playing with Derek and around 87, 88, I kind of decided, you know, it's time for me to, to try to play with Cecil because I had been studying in high school. I studied with Andrew Cyril and I studied with Steve McCall just to get a handle on, you know, what, what should I be thinking about to, to play free jazz, you know? Wow. That's a whole thing right there. Yeah. That's a whole thing. I mean, <laughs> I, I want to do an episode about those lessons at some point, but you know, Steve was was so sweet and just so laid back. And Andrew was very strict and very uh, regimented about how these lessons would go. And, you know, called me out for being sounding like Tony Williams at that point. I think I was a senior in high school and <laughs> we were allowed to take lessons for high school credit with other other people. I would go into New York and study with them. So, you know, it was it was that moment where I'm hanging out with Cecil a year. I hung out with Cecil for a year before I got the gig with Cecil. But during that time, if you, if people who follow Derek's career know, uh, FMP records invited Cecil to come over and play with a bunch of European improvisers, Evan Parker and, um, um, uh, just a, a lot of people from the Globe Unity Orchestra. I'm, I'm blanking on a lot of the names, like um, who uh, who it was, uh, Ernst Reisiger, guys like this. And mm. so Derek went over to Germany. I'm sorry, uh, Cecil was going to go over to Germany. But before he did, we were hanging out and he says to me, I'm supposed to play with this guitar player, Derek Bailey. Do you know anything about him? So again, this door opens to this moment. And I say, Cecil, I, I play with Derek. And he goes, really? What's that about? And I had a tape of one of the things that we had done at my parents' house. Oh, wow. And I played it for Cecil. And in a way, just saying, like, here's what you're going to be dealing with when you play with this guitarist you've never heard of. And you never play with guitarists. I think it's the first time he played with a guitarist. And wow. Only been one other time Derek had it. Uh, Cecil had a guitarist. So they were going to play duo. And so I played Cecil my duets with Derek. And he got it immediately, of course, because he knew all the classical stuff. And he he was just a brilliant listener. And he said, Oh, you guys are changing textures so quickly. I've never heard anybody change textures that fast. And, 
you know, Cecil was clearly into the, you know, the fast changes and and just the interruptions and moving and and quickly changing up things. And so he got it right away, but he also got to hear me play in that style, not like a drummer, but like a percussionist. Right. And that led to him going over to play with Derek. He had a great experience as a, you know, incredible box set of Cecil Taylor, you know, with all the FMP improvisers. And when he came back, all of a sudden now he's playing with Tony Oxley. And there's a trio called the Field Trio from around 88, where it's an 89, and it's Cecil, William Parker, and Tony Oxley. So I heard that, and again, oh, wow, he's playing with Tony Oxley. He's playing with a contemporary percussionist. He's not playing with uh, an African-American free jazz, post-jazz drummer. He's playing with a percussionist who's doing scraping sounds and little you know different kinds of bells and unusual tunings on drums and all sorts of junk percussion and and tony's a master you know just incredible and i was a fan so that then that, at that point i'm like i have i gotta play with cecil if you if you're allowed to play like that with cecil then clearly he's up for whatever so that ended up eventually tony wasn't available and so cecil called me at seven in the morning on a wednesday i had an office job i did i didn't even you know have a regular playing gig and he woke me up out of a dead sleep and he said are you available to play tonight uh, tony oxley's not available so i followed steve mccall and tony oxley in cecil's band because of derek Mm. And I knew that I didn't have to be a free jazz drummer in Cecil's group. I, I could do something different. And that's that's a whole other episode that I want to talk about, you know, how I ended up approaching Cecil's music. But but the fact that Cecil liked Bartok and loved Stravinsky and and Carter and, and knew all of the contemporary stuff that I was into, Verez, um, again. You see that the greats, they know everything. That you, you know, and you learn, oh, I gotta know everything. <laughs> you do. I, I better know every possibility because I'm gonna need to pull on these different strands to try to forge something of my own. Um, if I want to make something substantial. And that was what I want. I didn't want my my improvisations to to be um flimsy mm. i wanted them to sound like i knew what i was doing and i had purpose and intent and so i i did kind of eschew the idea of um randomness um even if someone else was playing random in my mind in my grid it all referred to something mm -hmm. so the way you think of how the other person plays is important too, not just how you play, how you contextualize the other guys in your plan. Absolutely. How, right. And how it will affect your choices musically, how your choices will affect their music approach. So, you know, knowing that Derek and Cecil were such huge classical aficionados, 
made me feel very much at home and unlimited. So your your work with Derek and Cecil, um, it within their free improvisations, did they ever talk to you about? Uh, whether or not they were thinking in the moment, or are they just feeling, listening? That's a really good question. Um, Derek was not big into thinking about it. He obviously practiced a lot, wanted to have uh, control, same thing, Cecil, you know, eight hours a day practicing mm -hmm. control. I'd rehearse with Cecil and he'd do one of those chromatic cluster runs seven times exactly the same way. And I, oh, he's practicing. It's not just those are just like, oh, I'm throwing my hands around on the keyboard. No, <laughs> those were runs. Sure. Those were riffs. Those were vocabulary. You know what I mean? And yeah. so, yeah, it, it was it was very interesting to me that um, Cecil had written material, mm -hmm. Eric didn't. So Cecil, but Cecil's written material uh, was note names and groupings of note names so that you might call them pitch classes uh, where he would organize either triadically or in some fashion, how he's gonna keep certain pitches at it going for a minute. Mm -hmm. or he moved to other ones um and Derek I didn't feel was was interested in that as much as this is what I'm doing now and I'm going to work with it so it was still organized but it was much more spontaneous right uh, listen and, and then also listening to both of them solo I can give everyone a, a big clue here I learned how to play with them by playing along to their solo albums. Mm. I thought this is music minus me. <laughs> You're right though. <laughs> That's totally awesome. That's correct. I mean, it's there. Nobody said you couldn't. I mean, you won't want to put out a record that way, but no, it's a tool. It's, Cecil's it's going great. to do certain things. Derek is going to do certain things. Now, if he's not listening to me as the recording is not listening to me, what am I going to do that's going to fit in with what they're doing or what to complement? Mm -hmm. So if you're a, a sax player and you want to play duets with Derek Bailey, then put on guitar solos by Derek Bailey and improvise. Sure. If you're, you know, uh, uh, a bassoon player and you want to play with Cecil Taylor and figure out what he's doing, put on indent or mm. above mountains, buildings below, you know, and, and, um, and play along to that. And you'll see by the third or fourth or fifth time what's going on and what you need to do to make cohesive music in, in that setting, you know, sure. um, you start getting some insight from doing that. It, it removes everything. It clears the path and you get the view right into what they're doing. Because I also remember studying with, with McCall and, and being around the AACM guys. And I remember Lester Bowie saying at a concert, Muhal said, you got to be able to play solo. And that everyone in AACM had to give solo concerts. 
And I remember that edict. So in 85, I started touring solo percussion, you know, as early as 85. So I've been playing with Derek for a couple of years, but I hadn't been playing solo. And so I would pack the, the Dodge Dart <laughs> falling apart with all my percussion and drive to galleries and universities and any place they would have me and go play solo percussion concerts. So, you know, the, the notion of if you have the music, then it should be, you can do it on your own. And then it can be inserted or, uh, you know, melded with other people. Uh, but you have to have your own thing going. Absolutely. Yep. As you know. Yeah. Yeah, I find I find it um, so interesting, this whole this whole area of chatting, you know, because we could keep going with this idea with a lot of different musicians and artists and sculptors and on and on and on and on writers, um, dancers, filmmakers, dancers, filmmakers, on and on and on. And, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's infinity we're talking about. And, you know, it's. Um, it's the most amazing place there is for me, you know, and I think you too, you know, it's like the idea of going in and creating music right now, whoever you're playing with. And, and, um, as we do that more and more and more and more and more, uh, we keep discovering more and more and more and more, and it leads to just the most beautiful discoveries, right? Um, and it enriches our lives. And as musicians, we start understanding a lot more stuff. But I think you have to do that kind of work to get in there to to uh, to to enrich yourself and find um, this next thing, because I just feel like it's always the next thing. You know, once we finish the record, it's on to the next record, the next sound. What are we going to discover here? And different combinations of musicians there's always new stuff and and certain combinations have the right chemistry and then you're like whoa let's do this some more and see what happens and so right. here we are right yeah and when you and i improvise together it's, it's something else entirely yes uh, and i don't feel that i'm beholden to uh play a certain way with you uh and and you're not that way to, when you play with me and so you know I, when i've done these interviews uh with people for yale um some of the greats like jack dejanette said to me when i asked him what is jazz and he said jazz is surprise me uh, i love that <laughs> and i love it because that's jack that is jack straight up and down like yeah. you don't know and and it's going to be great and and or maybe it won't be the greatest time you ever heard him but it's not going to go in there and and play safe no i saw him and will calhoun play at a nam show one year and it was just a drum duet and um they originally were going to the story i had heard uh was to rehearse some mm. some stuff playing together and um they did all that and spent a lot of time and then the day of the event jack went to will and said let's just play yeah and it was amazing well and that's also neat too right is you know you rehearse your band so that you can be freer 
Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, you're not rehearsing necessarily to recreate. You're Even playing. when I do repertoire, yeah. you know, with, like with the Mahavishnu project, I, I, I don't want it to be the same every time. Right. And you make an effort to throw some monkey wrench in there to, to, to just everybody goes, whoa, I'm surprised that, that happened. What do I do now? How are we still in the form? You know, or yeah, we're in the form or we're in we're in time or but now it's been blown apart. How do we get it back together? So things like that, like I, I like um, the contrast of unity and complete independence. And it's part of my whole strategy thing of like, I like the scale. And this is something that I probably say too much, but I like the idea of a scale. And by the scale, I mean, when I was studying Stockhausen's music, he said that any element of music can be put into a scale from zero to 10, if you will, of density, of volume, of pitch, of timbre, zero to 10. And then you have your choice of, do I want to give people zero? Do I want to start with 10 and go to zero? Do I want to start in the middle and have? So this drives me quite a bit is this notion of a scale of zero to X and what you're going to do about it. Mm. Yeah. You know, and I know that people like Cecil did that because Cecil would go to one note. Derek would go to one sound and, and you have, you have this lesson that you're taught by working with guys like that, that you better have a range. <laughs> yeah. You better have some range. Yeah. You're done in the first 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I like also the long, as you and I have gotten into the long idea. Yeah. Uh, take your time to let something unfold. Well, I think that's that's really something that's important. And sometimes I use the analogy of, of snorkeling or something when you start at the surface and it's like, oh, the water feels good and you're swimming. But as you go deeper, all of a sudden you start seeing fish and you start and you're rewarded uh, the further uh, you go. But musically speaking, it's like micro um, composition happening. And you may may feel like I feel sometimes uh, a challenge or a struggle because you're just so in the moment. If you're in the zone, it's like the zone of knowing or whatever you want to call it. But it's kind of unfolding the whole time. And when you're improvising with someone else, the same thing is happening. And you yes. just you give it that space and that time and amazing things come from it. As we noticed the other day when we listened back. Right. I mean, it was astounding to us. Like we, what was great is we had forgotten what we had recorded because it was months ago. And so when we heard it back, uh, we had no expectation really, I guess. Right. I like that, that um, objectivity. And I, I kind of, I guess that's also something I build in is, you know, we're so subjective when we perform, uh, mm. we're so, you know, but, but, but maybe ideally there's got to mm. be balance with just being objective and saying, you know, no, I, I'm not going to play that sound. And, you know, no, I, I don't, I don't think I should go there musically. I'm, I think, you know, uh, if I'm listening, because 
you know, you do, this is something for improvisers, I think that, that we think about ideally is um, what am I doing? What's the other person doing? What is the amalgam of what we're doing? So, you know, you have to hear all of those different combina combinations of, of what is going on sonically. So there is a kind of a objectivity of like listening to the overall, not mm. just listening to yourself. Absolutely. Some, some improvisers don't listen to anything but themselves. <laughs> and everybody else has to kind of support what they're doing. And I've been through that with some people and, and it's not ideal for me. I, I don't enjoy it. But when I feel like there's a, the guy that I'm playing with is willing to lay out as much as I'm willing to lay out. Sure. Now, here's a funny thing. I, since I had played with Derek and it was very egalitarian, playing with Cecil was not egalitarian. It was interestingly a slant on that, which is, yeah, this is free, but he's the catalyst. Right. Cecil's, coming from not, him. Cecil's not going to lay out, right? You Cecil. can lay out and that will change the texture. Maybe yes. the bass player will lay out. Um, maybe you have to uh, form your own voice or how you'll support what they're doing. But he it's all it's all coming from the piano. It was it's really much more like um, a benevolent dictatorship where Cecil's dictating what's going to happen when he's going to stop and change and get quiet when he's going to go fast and when it's going to get loud and, and, and cacophonous and you know, so that was different because with Derek, it was much more interactive. With Cecil, it's interactive, but it's interactive on his playing field. But do you feel that you're kind of uh, acting as orchestrator in a sense in that role? Always. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that I think that's what you do when you are a sideman, um, particularly as a percussionist. I, I always feel um, if it's clear that someone's the head honcho and you are a support uh, element, if you, you might get a solo or you might get some space. But I like to set up what people do in interesting ways and orchestrate. Yeah. How, you know, you never like this is to talk about playing with Derek. I. I did orchestrate frequently because I knew that it would bring other things out of his playing. So one of the things that happens on banter, a couple of things that happen on banter is when I go to bode long tone sounds, he starts using feedback. <laughs> and uh, remarkable control of feedback and at low volumes and and uh, people still can't explain to me how he does that maybe you can you but i you know we'd be playing quiet i'd be bowing things and he'd be have like these really quiet long feedback notes that he could control it did he use uh, did he use an ebo or anything no this was just he the guitar hollow, hollow the guitar body, in the amp yeah hollow body electric volume pedal Sometimes an overdrive of some sort. I, oh, I a fuzz could, face. Yeah, you could have that on and like aiming near the amp, perhaps, you know. Yeah. So that and or playing hand drums. Uh, uh, there are a couple of pieces on banter where I just play bongos and dumbek and there's no metal. There's no splashy, trashy, and it's all very articulated attacks. Now that fits right in with Derek's Chink, 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 
his his percussive attack. And it creates another kind of space. It creates another kind of space. Certain frequencies are not going to be in there. Yeah. You want that because yeah. it, gives, it gives it, you know, again, it gives variety, but it, it gives people a chance to to hear something different and not think everything's the same. Because I, I, again, I can't. I agree. Yeah. And deal each, with that. Each piece is unique in that way. My mantra has been for over 30 years, every piece is its own universe, whether it's written or not. That's a new universe now. That next piece, we're not there anymore. We're here now. If you can do that and get away with that, I think that's an accomplishment. So I'd like to think, in the words of uh, Prez, of uh, Lester Young, I try not to be a repeat offender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Um, there, there were so many amazing uh, Derek records uh, looking through his discography today. Uh, Tony Williams and Bill Laswell was one that you mentioned to me that I've never heard that I want to listen to. Jamaladeen and Calvin Weston, um, Susie Ibera, Zorn with William Parker. You may have mentioned that earlier. Anthony Braxton. Um, Dave Holland and Evan Parker. Those are just a few that I wrote down that need further exploration. Any any thoughts about uh, those records? Well, you know, you're, you're you listen to them all because you're you're kind of saying like, what's Derek going to do in this situation? Exactly. <laughs> what's Derek going to come up with the ruins? You know, what's Derek going to come up with with um, you know, a claret, clarinet player from the New York Philharmonic, you know, like what's Derek? And, and so he would change or he wouldn't change. Yeah. And that was always interesting to me too. Like he was very adapting, had a, had a, an approach of adapting to things that I would do, but then I'd see him in situations where he was just not adapt. He would not budge. And, you know, the, the sign of four comes to mind. Ah, um, Let's talk about that for a while. Okay. How did that happen? Well, I had been playing uh, duets with Paul Wertico, the mm. drummer, percussionist. And um, we met in Chicago. I was playing, I think, with Evan Parker and Roscoe Mitchell at Hot House. And Paul came down and we were introduced. And he said, you know, I really like what you're doing. And of course, I knew who he was. And I said, oh, I love what you're doing. Uh, tell me about the Latin rhythms, you know, that make up some of the Matheny music and, oh, they're hybrids. And we, you know, so we get into it right away. Then he's like, man, you know, we should play. So I had done percussion duets. And I think at that point I had had even played duets with Donardo Coleman and a bunch of different drummers just because I'm interested in in double drumming or interested in like, what do you do when the other guy's playing the same instrument as you? You better do something interesting. And Paul and I did that. We did an album called Bang. Wow. And it's on Spotify. And it's every piece is a different setup. And every piece is a different rhythmic approach. And some are marches and some are Latin and some are just, you know, metallic, mechanical sounding things. And um, and so Bang was very successful for me in terms of, well, we played music. It's yeah. not just, you know, the joke is that it's bang, you know, you think, oh, 
This guy was just banging <laughs> around. No, we really, really organized. And it was all recorded spontaneously, but we all knew, we each knew that we would change the setups. And this would be just, you know, talking drum and bongos or, you know, just metal symbols or just one thing. Uh, and and pulse and of course rhythm. Yeah, I look so, forward to hearing that. Oh, it's it's a it's a really, I think it's a successful percussion duet album. So, so I got to know Pat Metheny by going to uh, Metheny Group concerts because they're going strong at that point. Lyle, sure, Hayes and and uh, Steve Rodby, mm -hmm. and uh, they're playing that music and Wordico's in there, and I get to meet. Matheny on multiple occasions and he says to me what are you up to one time and I said oh you know I just made a record with Derek Bailey and to my tremendous surprise um, but I shouldn't have been he says Derek Bailey I love Derek Bailey said, you love Derek Bailey's playing oh yeah I said okay can you just tell me though like how do you know Derek's playing and again the greats know everything and he says to me at a very young age, I made it my business to hear every guitar player on the planet. <laughs> yeah. And of course, he knew the ECM record with Derek and Dave Holland duet. Sure. I think that was the one he referenced. And he said, oh, man, I'd love to have dinner with him sometime. And I said, well, you can. I will. I will be happy to set that up. And as I'm walking away... I turn around and it's like also the sometimes when these things just click in your brain. And I said, Pat, you and me, Paul and Derek. And he just, let's do it. <laughs> what a moment. I just said, you and me, Paul and Derek. And he cleared his schedule for it. I mean, you know, he's doing a million things at that point. He was playing sure. with Liebman. He was playing with Michael Brecker's Tales of the Hudson. He's got the Matheny group going strong, but he wants to do a record with Derek Bailey. So then it became just logistics of what would it be and what would Pat want it to be? What would Derek want it to be? Derek had not heard Pat. Derek knew who Pat was, but he had not heard him. So he had no preconceptions about it. And of course, Derek always says yes. That's another thing you learn. Like, say yes to things. That's a beautiful thing. Right? So it became, how is this going to work? How will this happen? Um, and I think Pat and I agreed, as did Derek, that it should be some live stuff in front of an audience and we should have some time in the studio to, to kind of get a range of what it could be. Pat also uh, put down that the first time we ever play together should be on stage in front of an audience. So there wow. would be no prep, there'd be no rehearsal, there'd be no run through, there might've been a sound check. I think it was a level check to be honest, because he really didn't want to play anything preconceived when we hit the stage so, so we booked the knitting factory for two or three nights and we booked the studio sound on sound um and i think it was 
think it was gigs and then studio and then gig again, but that doesn't really, that doesn't make sense because it means we'd have to strike everything and set up again. But, but I know it was multiple days of both things and it was really peculiar. It was not, it was certainly nothing I could have predicted. Um, at times it was, it was deafeningly loud because Pat plays loud. And when, he does. Pat, when Pat heard, when Derek heard Pat playing loud or vice versa, it became like, turn up. Now, Pat's got more firepower because Derek's playing through a twin, as he liked to do, usually at head height, which I found interesting. I don't know if, if a lot of people ever think about that. Mm -hmm. Most guitarists I play with, their amps are on the floor. Derek had his up, always up on a chair so that it was right by his head. And so that he could access it easily, I think, too, in terms of that feedback stuff. So the first thing we played is the first thing that's on the sign of four, the 79-minute wall of sound uh, study in Scarlet. Um, and then more dynamic things happened after that bloodletting. And uh, <laughs> people were not happy. Uh, their audience members were in tears. Uh, oh. Many were angry and walked out. Um, I don't know what they were expecting. If they had not researched Derek at all to see, you know, no. even that Pat had already done uh, Zero Tolerance for Silence and Song X. So he's he's a pretty, you know, loose cannon and, and when he wants to be. So we recorded all this stuff. Um I, again, tried to change setups for everything. I brought in my bass marimba, brought in uh, chromatic boobams, uh, tried to bring in as much tune percussion as possible to really uh, give variety to the project. And the only people involved in the post-production of that uh, recording stuff were me and Pat. And so that was a chance for me to work with Pat on what takes do we choose what is this thing called uh how, you know what is it going to be as a as a physical final product and i was a huge am a huge arthur conan doyle fan and a fan of sherlock holmes and his adventures and of course i knew the sign of four as being one of the great epic holmes adventures and i got this this derek bailey british guy playing in the band <laughs> and his house looks like uh the 221 baker street in london where the homes apartment was supposed to be and it was the same setup with the walk up of the stairs and the narrow and the two different the floors and and i just got into this thing of like well this is this the sign of four, the four guys, I came up with the logo that's on the cover. And um, Pat basically said, you're producing this. He didn't want to produce it. And he wanted somebody who had more experience in that area to kind of take the reins. And so I was happy to do that. Uh, very much like I had done for the Cecil Taylor record in Fluorescence, where you know, I chose the takes and uh, and the sequence and everything. Now, the difference here was that Pat had some things that he wanted 
to happen. He wanted three discs. I wanted the best of everything on one disc. He said, no, it's three discs. The first disc is going to be the first thing we ever played together. Like, and he, for some reason, mentioned Live at the Blackhawk um, by Miles. Like, that was the model. Because we, I do this, maybe <laughs> we do this, he does this. Like, like what's the mo is there a model of any sort for this record? Now, very abstract, tangential reference there to Live at the Blackhawk. But, you know, the first thing is you're going to hear us walk on stage and we start playing. Okay, so that's the study in Scarlet. Then there, you know, these two other discs. The second disc would be all of the studio stuff. And the third disc would be live again, uh, but more variety. He really wanted that first disc to be the noisy disc. And I saw this coming down the pike. I'm like, oh, people aren't going to get past the first disc. And so to this day, the sign of four is one of the most controversial records that he ever did. Certainly one of the most controversial I ever did in terms of people love it or they hate it. Right. Hate it. But some people love it. And, you know, I put a lot of care into it. I wanted a color scheme for every disc. I wanted follow through on all the visuals. You know, like I said, I did the logo. I did all the titles. All the titles of the pieces I took from sign of four either you know paging through and finding sure. something i liked or yeah. had specific ideas of what would be you know fun references to to the sign of four so i you know i liked the idea that it would be completely bonkers improvised music but there'd be some concept to how it was organized if very very vestigial <laughs> and and then it came out and it sold well. And I think it sold out of print. Um, it's out of print now, but you can find it on YouTube. And and I encourage people to to listen to it and decide what you think about it <laughs> because it's it's quite noisy, but it's also very textural and very yeah. dynamic. And and I think it 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 shows that. You know, Derek and Pat were quite different players. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but it's a wild ride. So I'm looking at my notes and, you know, it's like, I mean, hearing your stories and 10 years with Derek Bailey, I mean, that's totally enriched your life uh, as a musician and as an improviser. Um, I guess it's something that you carry uh, with you all the time now really you know it's it probably shows up in all your gigs and all your recordings in some way what you learned from them yeah I, it was over 25 years with derek um wow. on and off different places different combinations duets workshops um we did an interesting workshop where uh students at the Art Institute of Chicago came and heard us play duets and and then we added players and and one of the student players and one of the the exercises was for the audience to close their eyes and listen and raise their hand when you couldn't tell how many people were playing. Now this is interesting for me because I like to know about like what is what at what point is stuff too dense or too complex 
for civilians, maybe, or <laughs> for people who don't regularly yeah. listen to this kind of music. And every time we went beyond three players, everybody's hand went up. So there's something interesting about three. There's something interesting about two. But it is interesting when you get into four players and you get into five players improvising, somebody, hopefully everybody, but somebody's got to understand that not everybody can play the whole time. Yeah. That's just my my feeling about orchestration and about uh, determining a shape some sort of form, some sort of body to this thing, you know? Uh, so, you know, doing workshops with Derek and a couple of other recollections was um, we were playing and I'd say, I'd have the vibraphone and I'd say, Derek, do you want my A? You know, like we were gonna tune up and he'd say, no. Then it would sound too much like Christmas bells. <laughs> I don't, know. I don't even know. But at the same time, there were there are moments when he would tune to me. So he liked, again, that, like, no, we're not in the same tuning system. Or yes, we are in the same tuning system. Like on banter, we are in tune. But I plenty of times I play with him where it was vibrations because we weren't playing the same A. He explored it all. Yeah. Um, so that... As I say, working with any of those great guys, uh, you know, I had the the great privilege of working with Derek. I had the, the honor of working with Cecil Taylor, with Ornette Coleman, um, these guys who forged their own path against all odds, took a lot of crap for it. Yeah. In the early part of it, because who believes that these guys can even play their instruments? You know, um, I met Alan Holdsworth in 87 told him I was playing with Derek Bailey. And his response was, quote, I could never really figure out if that chap could actually play the guitar. So I knew that, you know, it's not for everybody, but right. I, you know, yeah. and I knew it was for me because I knew what it was. I always, I, I always kind of analyze things to the point where I want to know your influences. I want to, I want to ask you questions of, do you know, you know, Weber and Opus 5? Do you know this? Do you know, like, or what's your favorite Stravinsky? Or, you know, uh, who have you been playing with? Who have you not played with? Who, you know, who do you like? Who do you... That's kind of been an approach, too. Like, you kind of want to know their universe. You want to know their frame of reference. Sure. Will my, will my references tweak something in you that you get it like, oh, he knows about wide intervals or, you know, he knows about sheets of sound or any of these things that we, you know, bandy about with uh, all these approaches and all the guys that we've listened to. Um, you know, who's into Coltrane? Who's into early Coltrane? Who's into later Coltrane? Who's not? And I, I've worked with a lot of guitarists. This is the other thing. I've, I've always loved working with guitarists. Uh, Zuthorn Rollo, Gary Lucas, Nels Klein, um, you know, the guys that are just creative on the guitar for, for whatever it is. I just find guitar and drums are really great. Um, they were, they kind of go together. Um, yeah. 
so yeah, I I I always enjoyed playing with Derek. I was never bored. Uh, I never felt rote or or routine. Um, and the same thing with the other gentleman that I mentioned, because that's part of how they do business. Uh, it's a big part of how they do business. It's not. It's not going to be. I mean, they they're, they're so excited to be playing so you're with people who are not like oh, i'm on a gig you know i gotta do this gig and I'm traveling it's a drag like no get on to stage to play with those guys and it's on mm. and that's the attitude i've also tried to carry right. through like you know what a what a treasure to be able to make music and have people listen to it and and be yeah. you know really in your zone musically and try to bring together different elements of of all the things you're interested in and having seen that in the case of those three giants of creative music that's that lives with me to this moment is uh sure you got to grow you got to change you you have to be interested in different setups for your different settings of your your ideas and don't don't be in your comfort zone too much you know? Yeah. So, yeah, Der I think about Derek a lot. Um, we had a lot of laughs. Um, he, you know, he wasn't like a super warm, fuzzy guy, but if he liked you, you know, and you're okay in his book, then, you know, you can have a good time and, you know, and he, he'd say if it, he thought the music was good or if he didn't. So, you know, it's it's not there wasn't a lot of talking about the music, which is also something that's interesting uh, that I've noticed also speaking to other people who played with people like Derek and Cecil is they don't really tell you what to play or not to play. Right. So the trust that you're going to do something cool and the uh, responsibility that you must do something cool and something interesting uh, that's always coming straight out of playing with guys like Derek Bailey. Was uh, working with Derek when you played with him, did you feel like it was somewhat like a conversation or not always like a conversation? Well, he would, I don't know if I mentioned this early, but he would say, don't listen to me. Mm. Now, he didn't always say that, but I know that he offered that as a possible strategy. Like, it's interesting when people, you can hear them interact but what if it's just two com two monologues going on simultaneously and they just happen to coincide in certain moments? Sure. That's interesting too. I get, I get that. So yes, it was a conversation, but also the 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 idea of um that structure could also be formed out of randomness of random, you know, concurrence that happens when you're not listening to each other. So you have to have your own strategy. You have to have your own game sure. plan. Because, yeah, you, you know, sometimes when you improvise, um, maybe something isn't going the direction or it's going into something. Uh, maybe you don't want to go that way. So you kind of sabotage it a bit. And I think that can always do something interesting. So did that kind of stuff occur too, or is that that's the kind of thing like don't listen to me? So it would just happen on its own. Again, it's 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 always a little bit of both. Um, yeah, yeah. 
you know, and, and, and you would be aware that you had done a bunch of stuff together. So now try something else. Sure. Yeah. Do something apart. Um, I, I think it's very important for, for musicians who have had some study or, or interested in how music is put together, that we understand that um, when two people or more play together, there's a counterpoint. Exactly. It ain't just, you know, uh, a group, it's voices. Yes. So independence of voices, I've always found that interesting in anything, contemporary classical or jazz, or mm -hmm. whatever it is, sure. in, in vocals, um, you know, and so you understand the idea of like strength of individual lines having to hold up to each other and stand up to each other. Yeah. So... So yeah, it was point counterpoint. <laughs> well said. Yeah, that makes sense. Greg, I've learned so much today. Uh, this has been really incredible hearing the stories about Derek and Cecil and uh, Sinophore. You know, that's a great story. And just so much uh, wisdom and insight and playing experience that I think anybody that hears this can learn so much. So it's been great spending this time today. Well, I'm so glad. And and Tim, you know, I'm I'm glad that that you were the guy that could could pull me out and and talk to these things uh, because, yeah, it's it's fun and also I think relevant in an ongoing conversation about how music is made. Sure. Um, and uh, and you asked some really great questions. So so thank you. Ah, my pleasure. Until next time. Yes. And everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. Hit us on Patreon, like and subscribe and all that good stuff. You know, we're going to have a lot more stuff coming up. Um, I, I do have some some classic progressive British guys coming on the program soon. So look for that. And and my buddy, Tim Motzer, check him out, timmotzer.com. And he's got a lot of interesting stuff going on and all sorts of music. And we have a project coming out together, I hope, very soon. And uh, thank you, Tim. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>